Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. On yield, it's simple. 30-year bond midnight hit a low of a 196-ish, and we just went through that. Lisa, moments ago to a new low 30-year bond yield. Yeah, 1.959%. The question is, will this spur people to actually borrow more money, or does this indicate yeah. slowing growth uh, that won't have any kind no. of positive effect well, on the why economy? Why don't you ask that first question to our esteemed guest here? Because, you know, that's a perfect <laughs> Russ Kosterich? Russ Kosterich. Yes, of, of BlackRock. Thank you so much uh, for being here. I mean, that is sort of the key question, right? What can the Fed do at this point? What can lower rates do? Will that actually stimulate the economy from here? I think it cushions the economy. Can you stimulate it? Well, you've already have rates low. The mortgage rate, 30-year mortgage is below 4%. It's helping to stabilize housing. But is that by itself going to be enough to get the economy to reaccelerate? Probably not. I think at this point, what you're really trying to do is to stabilize things. So I'm looking right now at the expectations, an all-time uh, high of four and a half rate cuts being priced in by the end of next year by the Federal Reserve. Do you think that's appropriate? I think right now the big question is, or how much more damage are you gonna see from the rest of the world? So if I look at the US economy, it actually doesn't look in bad shape. The manufacturing sector is weak, it probably gets a bit weaker, but the household sector, which is of course 70%, is pretty solid. But to me, the risk is, does this contagion from trade from China, from Europe, start to affect confidence in a yeah. way that the Fed's got to be much more aggressive than they've been so far. Okay, Walmart, just out with earnings. They don't do a Macy's. What was Macy's down yesterday? Like 16 percent, 17%. 16%. I mean, Macy's with clearly a failed business plan. Walmart does better. They've got organic or same-store sales, 2-3-ish as well. They do a spin. They're down 7% from the highs of July as well. And retail sales at 8.30, those are the indicators of what the consumer's doing, right? I completely agree. Macy tells, Macy's tells you nothing. Macy's, as you pointed out, look, that's in secular decline. There are challenges to the department it's store. It's idiosyncratic. But See, what's happening with the broader consumer? Do we shot at tequila when we say idiosyncratic? <laughs> yeah, seriously. It's sort of like, uh, you know, the kids will play when the, the parents are away. Jonathan Farrow. Carry on. But honestly, this is this is important. So Macy's is idiosyncratic. Oh, shot. good shot. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I will say, what about Cisco? Uh, because that is not. And Cisco came out, and it just opened nine percent. Uh, the the futures are nine percent lower after reporting earnings You're yesterday. You're a of wisdom. Well, to me, this was a fascinating story because they actually reported a slowdown in their expectations. They cut their forecast because of the trade concerns and the yep. fact that businesses are not investing as much in computers. I, I think this is key. You know, watching the infrastructure companies looking at industrials. What are businesses doing? And, and here there is a clear risk because when you talk to companies, you talk to CEOs and CFOs, they are much more concerned about capital spending investment than they were a year ago. And so what we're seeing that in the forward guidance is somewhat concerning. Do you think that points to an even bigger downturn uh, than some people are pricing in? 
Well, it certainly points to the fact that a year ago there was this view that we're finally, after 10 years of sluggish growth, going to see this increase in capital spending, increase of investment. Yeah. That's not going to happen. Part of that is secular. Now, that's good news because many companies have grown with what we call a capital light business model. They don't have to spend as much thanks to the cloud, other technology. But we're also getting an economy now that's increasingly dependent on the consumer. You're not getting business spending. You're not getting investment to the same degree. It's coming down to the U.S. consumer once again. Thank you for joining us this morning. Bloomberg Surveillance, Lisa Abramowitz and Tom Keen. More data checks. Futures negative 11. Worser 20 minutes ago. The yield extraordinary. The screen is I, I have to check myself that the 10-year yield looks like a normal three-month T-bill, 1.52%. 30-year bond, 1.9603. We had a 195 handle, Lisa, a little bit ago. So, Russ, you're talking about the consumer, and the consumer has to remain strong. I was looking at the New York Fed survey that came out earlier this week about household borrowing, and we can see that the credit card uh, outstanding, as well as the auto loan outstanding, picking up delinquencies also picking up, defaults also picking up, albeit from a very low rate. At what point can the consumer not sustain this uh, kind of growth at a time when wages just aren't increasing that much? Well, I think that's a good point, but again, I, you, you nailed it. I think the key is it's coming from a very low base, and there are pockets of consumer borrowing where you're talking about student loans, revolving credit, where you do want to take a, a, a harsher look. But in general, the good news is not only is the unemployment rate low, but you are seeing decent wage gains, and most importantly, those gains are the strongest among lower income consumers. So I think the fundamentals there look solid. If you look at debt servicing costs, they're at historical lows. The consumer should be okay as long as hiring keeps up. What's the correlation of economic growth to the markets? It's, it's Thomas, correlate? you know very well, it's, it's very low. Now, having said that, it's low if you look at all periods. If you have a recession, then I think the, equ the equity market is at risk because it's not obvious with stocks down 5%, 6% from okay, the highs, this, you've priced that in yet. This is a critical question. I got this yesterday from someone emailing in. An MBER recession, good morning, Professor Frankel up at Harvard, is two negative quarters, and Jeffrey Frankel did some great research. Maybe not. Lawrence Summers is talking about secular stagnation, and there's this phrase from another time and place, growth recession. Is that what we're heading for, is one-ish growth? Well, look, depending upon your definition, you could argue we've been in secular stagnation for a long period of time, if only to the extent growth in this recovery has been well below any previous recovery. I'll go with that, but Lisa, I'm looking at the Bloomberg terminal, and it's telling me secular stagnation. Yeah, that's certainly what the yield curve seems to be uh, saying. And I guess that the question is, if we are in secular stagnation, what's the playbook at a time when central banks are easing once again? And as you sit there uh, looking at your portfolios, you are the global allocation fund portfolio manager. You're supposed to look around and say, what's going to make me money? I, I think that's it. And what it means is that you're probably going to have to look further afield than you're used to, whether you're talking about European dividend payers whether you're talking about bonds that are not uh, issued in the U.S., it's a broader global portfolio because your yeah. traditional sources of return and yield are not working the way they used to.
So what, what is the to-do now? I mean, don't give me this 60-40 or 60-30-10 baloney. What's the actual allocation you're proposing? Is it all U.S.? Is it all large cap? Is it get under the desk? What is it? It is not get under the desk. It is not all the U.S. It is a global portfolio. It's thinking more about equities as a source of yield. Now, right now, investing in Europe doesn't feel that good, but you've got strong multinational companies in Europe yielding 6 7%. You hedge bet that back into dollars, you're actually getting 8 or 9%. There are opportunities out there, albeit with some volatility. Yeah, yeah you know what? I hear that there's actually yield in Argentina. <laughs> there, there is yield in Argentina. You going? Uh, no, no, we are not uh, looking to add to Argentina right now, but there are things between Argentina and European consumer companies. That's probably the sweet you know spot. What I learned this week? Buenos Aires is 300 miles farther from New York than Honolulu. I have no idea. It's a I long did, flight. I lived. It's a, it's, You're going all the way around the equator. That's a long flight. It's, it's that's just. I lived in Chile know. for a year. And did I, you? Yeah, I did. Thanks, you didn't just know see, about should me. Should we cue the music? And you were in like a Patagonia thing down with the. No, I was alpaca. in Santiago working in a newspaper. But you know, I did go to southern Chile. But I was not on an alpaca. But yeah, it's 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 far. It's skinny. Very skinny. Do we have country. any Chilean music we can go out with? I don't think Seriously. we can do that. You can do Manu Chao. Fer I like Manu Chao. You know, Pharaoh's more interesting. All he wants is British bar music. I mean, <laughs> he's more. <laughs> you know, that, that's all there is to it. The yield market. Lisa, what's the most important yield thing you see right now? Definitely the 30-year. That's what In everybody's five watching. Basis points. Yeah, I think that that's yeah. really the most important thing to keep watching. Global head of commodities research, Jeffrey Curry, and I've had like 42 emails, Mr. Curry, on the geniosity of gold. What'd you do? Sit at, 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 at the diner there, three guys at diner, whatever it's called, and say we got to go long gold. Is that how this works? Review review your long gold call. That's a classic okay, well, playbook. Well, I, I, wait, wait. We first got bullish gold in this recent cycle back in 2000, and I guess it was 17, and it was based upon um, our fear and wealth model. Yeah, fear in the developed markets that um, was not that great at the time, but we were all focused on the wealth component in the emerging markets. Well, what happened? The wealth component of the emerging markets faded, and we got the fear component in the developed markets, and that's what we're do dealing with right now. But let's add on what really is the foundation of our bullish Please. call. One, the de-dollarization story. Central bank buying of gold um, in the emerging markets is very high. Russia alone last year bought 250 tons. Um, Polish banks buying 100 tons. The Chinese, the PBOC, is buying 10 tons a month at this point. Why? Because of sanction risk, geopolitical risk, trade war, Wait. the list goes on and on. These banks are want to diversify away from dollars. This, then, is a, mm -hmm. well, this is a really important point, but at what point is that the main technical driver in the market? Because this has been happening for a while. They've been adding to their gold portfolios for a while. And there are a lot of people who say, this isn't de-dollarization. This is just diversification and good, businessing, uh, good, good business models. Well, just the rate. Um, is at record levels right now. So it is, it is very unique in terms of, of their level. But I, but I think in terms of more recently in the last, in, in you know, this flight to quality, um, you look at why treasuries are where they are right now, where the dollar is, where it is right now, and gold. The gold has the one aspect that distinguishes yeah. itself from, let's say, yen, dollar, and treasuries, um, is that um, it doesn't have right. all of the other baggage attached What's to it. What's your target? 
1600. 16, okay. I want to I want to move on just because of time. The Bloomberg Commodity Index, which I would suggest is pretty good math, like the Goldman Sachs Commodity uh, Index. The vectors on these are ugly. Inflation adjusted, they're ugly as well. Are we in a commodity depression away from gold? The answer to that is, yeah. We, we argued back in 2015 we were going to go into what we call an exploitation phase um, in commodities that could last 15 years. We're in it right now. Um, we're about four to five years into this period. Um, if you look at that period from 1986 to 2003, the last time we were in there, um, that, that lasted 17 years. So we're probably in this for a long what time. What does that do to nations that are commodity-based? Um, you look at the period during the 1980s and 90s, Saudi went up to 100% of G, uh, debt um, relative to the GDP. Um, I, uh, we look at the, the I think, the, the many of those countries well, and the GCs, yeah, they're struggling. Jeff, I know this person that was a teacher in, in Santiago, Chile, a million years ago. She Every night she'd have a <laughs> bottle of Chilean wine. In a box. And go, I'm never, in a box. El gato. Yeah. El gato. And, and, yeah. and never go home. Lisa was in Chile. What does it do to Chile to have a commodity depression? I mean, it, like the uh, the other parts of Latin America right now, um, you know, th that they're struggling. The one thing that makes Chile very different from all the other commodity producers is Lisa Bravo. Yes. Hey. <laughs> hey. <laughs> but copper is the one commodity that does have a relatively positive outlook. It doesn't have the excess supply like oil, aluminum, nickel, and the rest of these you markets. Know, yeah, Dr. Copper, uh, which is sort of interesting because usually that's the doom and gloom predictor. But I do have to wonder uh, at what point supply and demand will matter again for oil because right now it seems like oil is trading more on fears of a future slowdown than anything concrete in the data we've had production cuts and growth isn't that bad right so what, how is this going to reconcile um, you need to have a fundamental event where markets focus on fundamentals as opposed to technicals. So does that mean that oil prices are headed higher in your view? No. I mean, they're going to go higher. We say 65, but we're going to go back up to yeah. you know 75. Unlikely. We can get up to the high 60s potentially, um, d d really driven by sentiment. The problem is, is that we have no volatility in fundamentals. And that's a, as a result, fundamentals have ceased to be driving markets like oil, and they've been much more driven by sentiment. Jeffrey Curry with us with Goldman Sachs, head of their commodity research futures up 15 we had green way red sort of red and then a nice pop here walmart helping out there uh, with uh, at the market taking uh, their earnings well walmart was up five percent at one point yields are in the 10-year in three basis point 1.55 percent dovetail your work with the work of Jan Hatzius. Jan is making a lot of headlines as Goldman Sachs, like everyone else, struggles with the Fed, the parlor game, struggles with this crazy market we see on the Bloomberg screen. Dovetail what commodities at Goldman Sachs is doing off of the economic view. Um, they're very much in line. You know, you, you, part of the reason why Jan was so hesitant in terms of embracing um, this recent rate cut is he looked at the fundamental picture and it just didn't warrant it. We look at the fundamental, as you just pointed, pointed out, in terms of oil. It doesn't suggest the world's falling off a cliff. Um, you look at copper demand. You look at steel demand. You look at most of these Iron markets. Iron ore? Iron ore. Even I, actually, iron ore is the canary in the coal mine. It's the bullish one right now. Um, so what we see in commodities is very consistent with what Jan sees in an economic environment. Um, the gloom and doom out there is more sentiment than it is reality. So then at what point... Could it be reversed? I mean, I know you're saying that it probably won't be dramatically, but at what point, you know, what has to happen for people to feel better, for the gloom to lift a little bit, people looking at the fundamentals a little bit more? I, 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 we look at the, the 
this gloom and doom, it's been with us since the crisis period of 08, 09. You look at investment in long cycle CapEx, people don't do 10-year investments because they're fearful of the future. This is not something that just crept up overnight. It's been with us for quite some time. You look at where all the CapEx and investment occurs, short cycle, things that get you return in 12 months, maybe 24 months they'll go out. Um, so this fear of the future has been with us for some time, and I don't see it abating. Give us a China perspective. You, you synthesize all of global. I've been to your offices in Hong Kong uh, a number of years ago looking out over the fancy real estate of Hong Kong. Great. Give us the Jeff Curry take on what we've witnessed in China, including the headlines this morning. Well, I, I like to look at it as to, you know, there's the exporters of the world and there's the importers of the world. The exporters of the world is where the recession is right now. Um, even here in the U.S., like Caterpillar, they're building up big yeah. inventories because they export land-moving yeah. equipment. Greg Ipps' article today was great on this. And yeah. um, so even inside the U.S., China, Germany's a big exporter. They're auto sector. So anything that's being exported has a problem. Why? Because they're building up inventories on docks. The importing side of it is drawing down inventories. They're destocking. So places like the U.S. that imports and so forth, why? They're trying to wait out this trade war. And as a result, um, the areas that are focused in exports, like China, and you look at the numbers yesterday, it was computer well, equipment, electronics, they got hit hard. Lisa George Friedman was brilliant on this yesterday with Geopolitical Futures about the U.S. is China's biggest customer. I, I mean, with that said, can you blame this market turmoil then on the president because it's a mercantile trade war? Well, it's, a, it's all about information flow. The information's coming in and out of the market. But the one thing I would say this time of year, and somebody once made this point to me, uh, markets in August are like a bunch of little kids at a soccer field. They just run the ball from one end of the field to the next. Um, so, you know, I'd be careful of reading too much of what we see in the markets today. I thought I that agree that's sort of what the tots did until they figured it out. This weekend, but it's so much fun. I was just to, channeling yeah. John Farrell. That's there. good. That I know. I, I got. I got a talk. sense. I, I know. I, under, I understood the uh, the implication. But going forward, I do have to wonder how it tied commodity markets are to the auto market and the fact that we have seen this slowdown in auto manufacturing. But um, you know, there, there. I think there's, there's another dynamic that's going on, which is you know upgrading, and you have a bunch of like, excess sales, probably to Uber and things like that, dynamics that are impacting the, the sales market. But this export-import dynamic, very apparent. What yeah. I found interesting was the Germany numbers. It's not cars to U.S. in China that are down. It's cars to the U.K., Italy, and Turkey, and Turkey's the big hit. So it's Turkey's ge the big ge hit. geopolitical risk are what I'd argue really driving that weakness in autos. Then we can see a tweet from the president, he and President Erdogan, personal meeting, exclamation point. Jeffrey Curry, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you for having this me. This morning with Goldman Sachs. We will digress right now. And we can do that on retail sales, easy to do, with Sarah Halsek in Washington, taking a more omnibus view of omnichannel as the future of retail. Okay, Sarah, Walmart, stick into their knitting, out with a good report, they pop. Macy's yesterday, an unmitigated train wreck. Compare and contrast the Macy's disaster with Walmart doing better than good. 
Yeah, it all comes down to execution. Look, uh, Macy's admitted yesterday that it had some merchandise misses, that its women's clothing offering was not up to snuff, and it suffered because of that. I think Macy's also struggles because a lot of its store portfolio is combi- confined to those regional enclosed malls that are just a format that are struggling to draw some yeah. traffic. Walmart, on the other hand, has really been making a lot of changes to sort of not just imitate Amazon, but sort of carve out its own niche in this kind of omni-channel world where it is okay. up its stores and also developing its e-commerce I mean, I've seen you bring a bar to absolute silence talking about omni-channel. Define, <laughs> define omni-channel for mere mortals. It's, it's a nerdy word for sure. Basically, it just means that consumers don't choose one or the other between brick and mortar and online shopping. That's they bounce back and forth between the Well, they bounce back and forth between the two channels, right? That we even see if you've made an online purchase, often that began with research in a store or vice versa. Okay, let's take it away to something a little more upscale. Has Nordstrom found success with quote-unquote omni-channel? So Nordstrom has recently hit some stumbling blocks, and I think we, particularly with Omnichannel, we saw this in July. They have their semi-annual sale, which is a very big event for them, a key driver of sales for the full year, and their website yeah. crashed. Um, and uh, consumers were really frustrated. They were taking a lot of heat on social media that here's this thing they've been uh, marketing to the hill, and people weren't even able to shop it. And so I think in, over the long term, Nordstrom was early right. to invest in e-commerce, uh, but recently has has showed uh, a little bit of a soft underbelly there. Take us away from the five zip codes that the media lives in, where we see a lot of, you know, bricks and mortar, empty stores and all that. Take us out across the great American plain. What does retail actually look like in some of these towns that, that don't have streets like Second Avenue? Sure. It's it's really anchored in a lot of those communities by dollar stores. Uh, dollar General uh, and Dollar Tree have been relative bulwarks, you know, amid all yeah, this change yeah. in the retail industry. They have been drawing consistent traffic, and uh, they have sort of figured out this formula for having a, a really strong assortment in a relatively small footprint that works for that consumer. And so they've been really uh, pulling sales away from lots of different kinds of retailers and will continue to do so as they expand into grocery. I think Kohl's is another example of a retailer that's worth keeping an eye on when you sort of think outside dense urban centers. Uh, This is a department store that doesn't tend to be in malls. It tends to be in strip centers that are closer to people's homes, can be more of a convenience-oriented type trip. Uh, And they're trying to sort of redefine themselves with this new partnership they have with Amazon, where they're accepting Amazon returns in their physical stores. Um, That'll be really interesting to watch how that gets traction. August 15th, I'm only 12 weeks behind in my back-to-school show. Shopping. Sorry for that <laughs> afterthought. Sarah, how's back to school going? Uh, I think it, so far indicators are that it's going fine. Um, we just had that July Is that because re- I'm spending $382.14 on school supplies? Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a number of factors. I think that, um, you know, we just had a strong July uh, retail sales report that probably reflected yeah. some of that uh, prime day uh, spending that we saw in in that month. And I think what's happening is back-to-school shopping is moving a little bit earlier into July. Oh, really? Yes, because of these of Prime Day and all the imitator Prime Day sales. Prime Day sort of becomes really? this rising tide that lifts all boats. And it moves some of that spending earlier. In a way, that can be a good thing for retailers because it just elongates the back-to-school shopping season. Um, yeah. 
then when August rolls around and you have those sales tax free days, uh, you still maybe yeah. will will be out there spending. I'll let you explain that afterthought school. Uh, as doing a slide rule course this year, so I have to go out and buy a Kufalaness or slide rule uh, oh, for her to do logs on or something. That sounds old school. Yeah, is Sephora part of uh, back to school? Uh, so I'm sure there, there will be some benefit, particularly when you think about back really? to college as opposed to uh, back to <clears throat> middle school. Um, but, yeah, certainly, <laughs> um, you, you know, uh, back to college spending is uh, an important uh, source of revenue for retailers. And I think, uh, you yeah. know, college women, Sephora has absolutely been a place where they like to spend oh, money. God, Sarah, and you, I'm sure they will be doing that. You can, if, you can finesse this like nobody I've seen. In the time we've got left, Sarah Halsek with us, folks, uh, uh, Bloomberg Opinion, writing brilliant seriously brilliantly on uh, uh retail let's go to luxury i did darken the door of a number of streets on fifth avenue here in the last number of days and it's sort of a summer bustle what's the prognosis for luxury given a 30-year bond of two year 2.01 percent yeah, so uh, th there are a little bit of discouraging signals out there for luxury. I think one we got yesterday from Macy's that it said it's Bloomingdale's chain struggled in the quarter. And part of that was actually a decline in international tourism spending, particularly here in the U.S. A lot of chains like uh, Tiffany, for example, or Michael Kors depend on overseas shoppers coming here uh, and spending their money in our in flagship stores in the likes of New York or San Francisco. Um, and so those were discouraging signals for uh, how those types of chains will hold up amid yeah. the economy as it's it's changing right now. <clears throat> okay, well, the economy has changed. Is Amazon doing luxury? I can't figure it out. Have they no. succeeded at luxury? Absolutely not. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, you. I, I think the, the, the challenge for Amazon with luxury is that if you're LVMH, you don't want your Louis Vuitton handbags in <clears throat> people's shopping carts next to their cat food, right? Um, it just does not <laughs> feel like an upscale experience. And also, these luxury yeah. retailers really want to have end-to-end -end control of how their brands are presented for consumers. This is why a lot of them are even pulling away a little bit from department stores, trying to get off those promotions um, that sort of cheapen their brands. Brand, right, and so when you think about um, how products are presented on Amazon, they basically have no control over it, right? Your product listing page, the way your brand is represented, uh, there's very little opportunity for them to forcefully shape that, and so they don't want to be in a retail experience where that's the case. Is Louis Vuitton still working? It? I mean, they see it everywhere. Is that still a defined luxury brand? It, it sure is. I think uh, Gucci has probably been a relatively stronger performer that's owned by a caring arrival to LV LVMH. Um, but look, the luxury market for sure is fickle, and I think that's even more so true uh, in this digital era yeah. where social media is putting fashion in front of consumers faster than ever before. They're seeing it in their Instagram feeds more frequently than ever before. Yeah. So an it handbag that might have stayed the it handbag for a year or two, 10 years ago, yeah. now stays the it handbag for like a like, month. Like and then shoppers have moved on. <laughs> the mini luggage BB, which looks like it could carry a baseball, $3,150. Let's wrap up, Sarah, with the big success of the year, and that is the real, real. The real, real is the real deal, isn't it? You know, I actually have some concerns about the real, real. Tell me about them, please. I, yeah, I think it's a little bit of a hard model to scale. Um, you know, what yeah. you're promising consumers is this vetting, right, of making sure this Are product they? 
Yes. So they are evaluating each one of these products that's sold on their site and promising that it's authentic, that it's real Chanel, that it's real Gucci, whatever it may be. And they also have to price each item individually because it's a unique SKU, because the wear and tear on each of these unique products is going to be different. And so to me, the idea that, you know, they're they're hiring gemologists and orologists to, (laughs) to, uh, you know, evaluate this merchandise. And to me, uh, the profitable scalability of that is really tricky. Sir, we got to go, but come on. It's just a dumping ground for divorces and leftover (laughs) stuff from weddings, right? (laughs) Uh, Well, I think it aspires to be more than that. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, um, I think that uh, you know it's trying yeah. to reach a broad swath of customers, I, I, and uh, yeah. we'll, we'll see how it does with that. Sarah, I just see you with a mini luggage, BB Louis Vuitton bag. It's tiny, folks. I don't know what you put in it. Three thousand one hundred fifty dollars. Help, Sarah Halsick. Thank you so much. Bloomberg Opinion futures advance up nineteen. This is Bloomberg. Right now, John Herman, and uh, John, I want to get to your GDP call, but first we've got to look at retail sales, productivity, the unit labor cost adjust. Does that constrain Chairman Powell's options moving forward? going to definitely make it uh you know as you know a lot harder so uh here's the here's the issue so um you know there's obviously a lot of pressure uh from uh donald president trump on powell to do more easing the markets were looking for at at one point yesterday you know almost 50 basis points of cuts in the september meeting alone and then another follow-on uh by the end of the year so uh you know there's pressure from the markets leaning that way um and into you know global global environment global economies are not doing anywhere near as well as as the U.S. is doing. So there's some concerns about those overseas risks and 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 those headwinds potentially blowing over here over the next 12 months. Or Do you so. see evidence that of that yet? Uh, you see it in capex. That's what you really you see it uh, you, the, in the U.S. Where we have uh, the strength is, uh, you know, in the consumer side, yeah. uh, on the and the job market is still resilient. It's right. not outstanding. It's not poor. It's just okay. resilient. And but you, when you look right. at capex, when you look at the housing market, when you look at exports, okay. you, and you look at inventory bills, you, that, that's the soft pocket. Okay, John, so I want to go to your all that stuff, folks. And the, big when, ticket and the big ticket item sales to the consumer right. are also a little bit soft. Okay, I got to be medicated when I read John Herman's notes. They're so uh, granular and so specific at MUFG that that the other note the other day, John, just stood out in that you framed four quarters of GDP or almost four years of GDP, which is a vector south a lesser gdp each and every year i want you to fold that into this idea that the manufacturing global trade challenges will they fold over into a weaker consumer discuss those two themes bring them together i mean this is this is a really you know this is the challenge uh, for for pinning down next year and for pinning down you know do interest rates back up 
say, you know, in the belly and the long end, do they back up 25, 30 basis points from here? Do we sort of hang around these levels or do we possibly rally, an, you know, another 20, 30 basis points? So that's like really the big, uh, the big issue in, in the markets. So what we think is, is happening is this. I, we were really concerned about a few items for next year. We were worried about there was a fiscal cliff that, you know, the details weren't ironed out and so on up until a couple of weeks ago. So we were worried about that, and that drag in conjunction with all the uncertainties surrounding trade, this definitely manufacturing slowdown globally, uh, you know, that just pointed to downward pressure on business sentiment and consumer sentiment over the next, say, 15, 18 months. We didn't have a recession built into our numbers, but we really were worried about the years 2021. And yeah, but this is, folks, that, this is. That's our issue. Folks, we're, this we is. We can't get rid of that worry. I th- wish we could. Okay. We can't get rid of that worry. This is so, so important is Mr. Herman is not signaling recession. Right. But you've got 1% GDP numbers. They're, they're not acceptable, are they, John? No. So, uh, and again, for the year, for the, so what we have is we have us decelerating to trend next year. Again, it's a year, it's a year of, it's, a, it's an election year, and it's going to be a year of high political uncertainty in America and abroad. Uh, in addition to the glowing, you know, the slowdowns that we've been uh, highlighting. So you have those headwinds for next year as well. We don't have, you know, the fiscal cliff issue. We just passed new budgets for the next two years and, and so on. But at this point, you know, you have to say if, if we falter, if there's a falter globally or something and that starts to yeah. affect us, you know, before the election, I, I just can't believe that the Democrats would come in and say, hey, Donald Trump, let's help you out here. Let's, you know, throw you another 50, 60 billion to help you out. I just can't see them doing that. Right. But uh, they may, but I just don't. It's just hard to. Okay. It's just hard to imagine because they're trying to impeach the guy. One final question: What are you yeah. doing with net exports? I mean, on the back end of the GDP equation, folks, are yeah. all the dynamics of exports, imports. Greg Ip's article right. in the Journal today was brilliant. Jeff Curry brought it up at Goldman Sachs. What is John Herman's export and import dynamics? So there's the, there's another there's the other issue. So again, the capex looks soft. Housing market looks soft. Don't have the you know the millennials for all the hype. The millennials are not really in the market in the housing. Uh, we worry about inventories just decelerating over the next year or two as businesses get a little bit concerned. The net exports for us, you know, growth overseas is not really that good. So our exports relative to our imports, we still see yeah. that imbalance to go over a trillion bucks over the next, you know, 12 months or right. so, possibly even sooner. So we have, the, we have the net exports as a drag, not just this year, not just next year, the year after, the year after that. We have the next four years. Okay. Net exports are going to be a drag on GDP. John- just no way we can get around it. Brilliant research note two or three days ago on our GDP reframing, Mr. Herman with MUFG. We thank him this morning. There is no question that the book of the year on Europe is a substantial volume by the giant of French history, Julian Jackson. And I am thrilled that he joins us now from London. Julian, one of my useful moments was the fight my parents had over as a teenager whether I could go in 1968 to Paris. I was able to see Charles de Gaulle on Bastille Day, which I consider one of my definitive moments in my life, forming moments in my life. You open brilliantly on page 713 how he got so wrong 1968. Was he past his prime then? 
Yeah, that's so well. Uh, thank you for the, um, what the nice thing you said about the book. Yes, I think um, remember that he'd been in power. He was an old man. He was his late. He was seventy-eight years old. Uh, he'd been in power for ten years, and he was faced with this. Um, seemingly inexplicable student revolution. And yeah, I think the answer is that he didn't fully understand the mm. new social, cultural demands of the younger generation. It wasn't his greatest moment. I'll agree with that. But I'd have loved to have been there like you. I think many of our listeners, and particularly those coast to coast, good morning across America, understand somewhat the de Gaulle in London battling Eisenhower, Vichy, France, and all that. Take us to his second career, which was out of the Algerian War. How did he extricate France from that war in 1958? Well, that's the, you're absolutely right. There are two great moments in his career. The one is the decision to go to London in 1940 and to go on keeping France in the war and all the quarrels that he had with Churchill. Um, actually, with Eisenhower, he got on pretty well. But yes, that's a great, important part. And then you're absolutely right. The second great moment is 1958, when he comes back to power. France is finding herself in this terrible conflict. And what he did, basically, over four years from 58 to 62, and he could do it, I think, because he was a conservative. And it was easier for a conservative to sell to the French public the idea that they would have to give up this last yeah. remnant of their empire. I want to move it. It's sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Max Hayes. Uh, and well, no, go ahead, sir. Please, please. No, I was just going to say, you know, I, I'm thinking of an American comparison. It was easier for Richard Nixon to recognize China than it might yes. have been for a Democrat. And so it was easier for a conservative to say to the French, you've got to give up your empire than it might have been for a man of the left. The book is De Gaulle, Julian Jackson. I can't say enough about it. It's won every word out there. Max Hastings and the British press absolutely rave about it. And all of this is a requirement of those thoughtful to prepare for the new Europe. Let's begin with this. What would Charles de Gaulle, what would General de Gaulle think of the present president of the French Republic? The president, President Macron, certainly is trying to act in a Gaullist way. Um, the constitution of France is the constitution that was created by de Gaulle for a strong president. And I think, actually, that the way that Macron is inhabiting the presidency in a very active way would have fitted in with de Gaulle's idea of what the president should be, as opposed to the predecessor, Francois Hollande, who didn't really ever seem at ease. Now, it hasn't all gone perfectly for Macron. There's been a big problem with the yellow vest. But nonetheless, I think the style of government isn't right. so different from the Gaullist style. Frame Charles de Gaulle with this raging battle, and I guess it's between the modern Brussels and London, but it could easily have been 40 years ago to Paris or to yes. Bonner Berlin or that. How do you frame the de Gaulle heritage within the arch-Brexit EU debate? Well, in France, there's an idea of de Gaulle that people have, which is that he was a nationalist, and he was a nationalist, there's no doubt. But he was a nationalist who realized that if France was going to be able to stand up in the world, to stand up to the Soviet Union as it then was, and to the United States, she had to do it through Europe. So he was a European but not a federalist, but very much a European of the idea of a European of states. So he would 
Uh, there's no doubt about yeah. his commitment to Europe. Of course, on Britain, he had as famously twice vetoed British entry to the common market, as it was then called in yes. 63 and 67. And I think he'd say, I told you so. Well, I, I think that would be true. And a few uh, British elites would say uh, General de Gaulle was correct. Within that is the modern trade. And of course, folks, we see that the Dow up 50 points right now. Uh, and we go back and forth on U.S. and China. Much of this Julian Jackson is framed by a president of the United States who harkens back almost to Elizabeth I economics. I mean, there's almost a mercantile society here. He had such a heritage of the war. Was Charles de Gaulle multilateral, bilateral, French lateral? Or was he a mercantilist? <laughs> In terms of um, international politics, he was somebody who wanted to break out of the Cold War paradigm, you know, the, the, mm -hmm. the two power blocks. And he said that this was bad for the world and that he wanted to, as it were, move to a, a multipolar world in which Europe uh, would have its voice. But he realized that France could only have her voice through Europe. He was a nationalist, but he was always a nationalist who believed in connectedness. He's the man who in 1940 left France yeah. rather because he said, Vichy France says, we'll be alone in Europe with Germany. He said, no, no, you'll be a vassal of Germany. If you want France right. to rise again, she has to be with her ally, Great Britain. Julian Jackson, outside of your wonderful book, De Gaulle, your thoughts on the future of Germany right now? We have a generational change with Merkel fragile and out the door at some point, a new government within a populist European economy. Your thoughts on the future of Germany? I'm, I admit I'm, I'm worried and pessimistic uh, because for me, Merkel was in the last, has been over the last 10 years, uh, a voice of, of um, decency and liberalism and reason. And when one sees the rise of the extreme right in Germany, I, I'm worried. I have to say I'm worried by the state of the world. Yeah. And I think that the, the Franco-German axis, when it worked, was an important anchor of stability, yeah. not just for Europe, but for the world. So I can't pretend I'm not worried. But I'm unfortunately a historian, not a soothsayer. So right. I don't know what's going to happen. Well, let's be a soothsayer right now. How's Madame Lagarde going to do in Frankfurt, Germany? What's your thoughts on uh, a finance minister, a politician, a lawyer at Baker McKenzie in Chicago? How's Madame Lagarde going to do in Frankfurt as ECB president? I think she uh, she's an uh, extraordinarily competent uh, in that way of a certain kind of um, uh, French trained uh, economist. I mean, she, she's had an stellar career, um, and I think mm. that uh, she's tough. She's um, uh, she's cosmopolitan. She's intelligent. She knows the job. Right. And I can't imagine, I think she'll be absolutely superb in that job, personally. Well, we're going to have... In, in a difficult world, she seems to me to be a, a positive sign, I'm myself. And Julian Jackson with us, and we are absolutely thrilled he could join us from London uh, today. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.